Hey, we're going to um, start a new series today. Um, so we've just uh, finished our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Um, it's a burp because we're eating so much probably. <laughs> yeah, we're finished. Um, so uh, we're going to start the series because we're going to be traveling now into, um, into Easter uh, as a church. And for those that um, are relatively new to us, we do our best as Bay Vineyard to follow the church calendar. And uh, over the years, there has been um, uh, the wisdom of the church has said there are certain events in the life of Jesus that we just want to we want to marinate in. We want to just cycle through this every year because they're so significant. And of course, Easter is one of those big events. And so, uh, I want us to. Um, I really like some of these traditions, some of these set prayers that we do, and some of these um, these kind of things like getting into the church calendar. Um, it's my Anglican history. My dad's here and he uh, grew up in Anglican church. And so I think there's, there's a bit of that that's, I, I didn't want that to seep into my skin, but it kind of has. Um, and so, uh, and actually really grateful for it, particularly now that I'm a senior pastor, because um, rather than just try and work it all out again, I want us to humbly come into the great tradition of the church and just to be really be shaped as a church by these key events, particularly Easter, is the greatest event in the Christian calendar. It's the climax of the whole story. And uh, in our culture, um, Christmas has become like a big, is the bigger deal culturally, which is, you know, birthed out of the idea of celebrating the incarnation that Jesus came. Now, I'm all over Christmas. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be uh, the Grinch that stole Christmas for anyone. But can I just humbly suggest that Easter trumps Christmas in terms of significance for the Christian, right? I mean, he came, but he came with a purpose, and that purpose ultimately found its fulfillment on a cross in Calvary on that Easter weekend. And so uh, what's happened historically in the church is that people have taken these seven statements that Jesus said on the cross and meditated on them, particularly in Good Friday services. Some traditional churches will have a three-hour, get your head around that, uh, service where they will work through these key statements that Jesus said on the cross that they could really sit in the significance of what happened on Easter Friday. And so we don't actually have an Easter Friday service, um, which is a great shame. And one day when we've got a venue and we've got, you know, we've got more volunteers than we can know what to do with, we'll run Easter Friday services. And so we kind of stick Easter Friday in our build-up and then we celebrate Easter Sunday together. And that's what we're going to do over the next five or so weeks. We're going to look at the seven statements. We're going to be mishing a few in there together uh, that Jesus said from the cross. Um, Fleming Rutledge, who we're going to be hearing from a little bit, she wrote a fantastic book on this. She said this, for Christians, Good Friday is the crucial day, not only of the year, but of world history. The early Christian apostles proclaimed the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be the decisive turning point for all the ages of the created universe. So that's what we're going to do. Now, Lent uh, began. So Lent is the build-up to Easter. And it's a, it's a 40-day fast with six feast days in it, which started last Wednesday. Now, we've been in the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and some of you guys are like, oh, time out, mate. Can we just stop with the fasting talk? So we haven't laboured it this year in terms of Lent. We did last year a bit. Um, but if you want to engage with Lent, I'd, I'd love to encourage you to do that. And what you do is you fast something for six days. So obviously it's not food. Uh, but you fast something. You fast sweets or coffee or, um, or, I don't know, whatever, you know, Facebook or something 
that you're really into. And every time that you have that thing of like, oh man, I'd love to look at that or, or eat that, or it's just say, no, I'm choosing not to, to in some tiny way identify with the enormous sacrifice that Jesus made for us and to bring it to mind. And then on Sunday, it's a feast day. Or you're on Facebook all day on Sunday, man, it's like Facebook party and you're like, this is awesome. Or, you know, if you don't drink coffee for that six days, you're just drinking it by the, the, by the keg, you know, or whatever it may be, or it's just nothing but lollies all day. And it's to anticipate the resurrection, hallelujah, of Jesus who defeated death and rose again. And so we party on Sunday and then we fast for the six days. Now, uh, sometimes... Um, People choose to actually just do the whole 46 days and just fast completely. You're breaking the rules a bit, but that, whatever, we're not going to follow you up on that. But uh, I'd encourage you to do that because we want, because Easter, like every year, right, it's so significant. You cannot just, you can't talk about it enough. You can't take communion enough. This lifetime will not be enough to plumb the depths of glory that, that happened on that Easter weekend. It is indeed the time where history changed completely. So, so let's just give a real quick summary before we come into this first statement today. Jesus has come into the world. This is God in the flesh. This is Philippians 2, the God of the universe who became a fertilized egg, who became literally nothing for us, who moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson said, and dwelt among us in this created world that he himself created. And as he comes, he preaches and announces that the kingdom of God has come. And what he means by the kingdom of God is that the government of, the, of God or the alternative arrangement of the world that comes from God, the ruler, it's come in Jesus. And he demonstrates it everywhere he goes. Everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom of God is just breaking in. And people whose lives were misery get turned around. People who have lived in pain and suffering get healed and whole. He sets prisoners free. He brings grace. He just, everywhere you go, there's just a party following Jesus because it's such good, it's good news. It's good news. It's incredible. But the interesting thing is that he invites us to leave behind our life of selfishness and to repent, which means to turn away from that stuff and to enter into his kingdom now, to experience the life and the beauty of God now. And Joe gave a testimony this morning of what God does. Doesn't even know it's happening. Meets Jesus, healed of a fear of death. I mean, that's what he does. It's incredible. The kingdom of God breaks in. But this threatens Three big groups of people as he starts doing his kingdom of God stuff. It threatens the powerful, it threatens the rich, and it, and it threatens uh, the religious. Because that kingdom, it just undermines all of the, 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 the kind of evil um, me mechanisms uh, of, of these institutions and the people that benefit from them. So it's the wealthy, it's the powerful, and it's the religious that just really struggle with Jesus and his message of the kingdom. Because it's like, this is going to mean that you're not at the top anymore, buddy. <laughs> like, it's the kingdom of God's upside down. Hallelujah. And so uh, it's very interesting when Jesus gets um, uh, arrested, it's Cephas, the very religious, the high priest. It's Herod, the very rich. And it's Pilate, the powerful, who collude together to execute this Galilean disruptor who threatened their preferred social order. Those three things combine together and Jesus is condemned as an innocent man to death. And so on the cross, and this is the first statement that we're going to be looking at, he says seven very, very interesting things, and we're going to explore these. So let's read from Luke chapter 23, 32 to 34. So two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. 
And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Huge statement that Jesus says on the cross. Again, Fleming Rutledge helps us understand what's going on here a little bit more. You see, the crosses that were normally placed by the roadside, in this case it's on a hill, as a form of public announcement. These miserable beings that you see before you are not of the same species as the rest of us. So the purpose of pinning these victims up like insects was to invite the gratuitous abuse of the passerby. These uh, crowds understood that their role was to increase by jeering and mocking the degradation of those who have been thus designated unfit to live. The theological meaning of this is that the crucifixion is an enactment of the worst that we are. It's an embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within us. The Son of God absorbed that all and drew it into himself. All the cruelty of the human race came to focus on him. So you can see the impact of this moment as the early church begins reflecting on the cross. You'll see this in Acts all through. This is Jesus. You crucified him by the hands of the lawless men. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. God raised up Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Acts 7.52, the righteous one that you have now betrayed and murdered. John Stott says this, before we can understand the cross as something done for us, we need to understand it was something done by us. All of the worst bits of human nature combined into one perfect moment to execute the living God. There's no better description of it. I know I'm quoting a lot of guys today, but I've done a lot of reading. Uh, There's no better description I've heard than this from Brian Zand. He says this, When Paul speaks of Christ being made sin, all we have to do is to look at the crucifix to understand this is true. What could be a greater sin? What could be a greater crime? There's no crime that can be greater than the crime of deicide, the murder of God. Get your heads around that. God was murdered, deicide. And that's what we see when we look upon the cross. We see the sin of the world coalesced into a single event, the killing of the innocent one. Now, there's some big words here that I had to look up in the dictionary. He's showing off, okay? So if you do not understand, just get the vibe, okay? Because now he starts saying some big words that I never use. He said this, On Good Friday, all the disparate sins of the world amalgamate into the sin of the world. Whether flowing forward in time or backward in time, every human sin, every act of selfishness, every debasing degradation coalesces into an awful singularity at the cross. What is the sin of the world? It is Jesus nailed to a tree. That is why on one level the crucifixion will always remain ugly. It is the image of all sin coalesced into a single event. But that's not all the crosses. The cross is also beautiful. The cross is both the awful crescendo of human sin and the sublime apex of divine grace. The cross is beautiful because it is the place where sin as a singularity is absorbed, forgiven and transformed into reconciliation. This is why this statement that Jesus says on the cross is so incredibly powerful. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. It's incredible. When you begin to contemplate this, it's, it's, it's remarkable. In fact, in the Greek, it suggests that this wasn't just something he said once. 
In the way they've phrased the Greek, it's this idea that he's actually just saying this over and over. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. He breaks the power of sin because instead of the constant recycling of revenge, uh, he doesn't call down fire like he could. He, he extends forgiveness. It's interesting because justice in our world uh, normally equals retribution and revenge. But Jesus doesn't deal out justice. Like justice in this moment is that everyone that did this stuff to him should be, should be treated worse if it's at all possible. He doesn't do that. Uh, it's interesting um, on, you know, like I don't, um, I don't, I'm glad we don't have the death penalty in New Zealand. It's horrific and we are pro-life on every level as followers of Jesus. But in the States, um, when someone's on death row, before they are executed, they're given the opportunity to say some final words in the hope that in that moment, if they haven't already to this point, they will ask for forgiveness to the victims of their crimes. And it's fascinating that Jesus, in, his, uh, in these last moods of Jesus, he's the one extending forgiveness because he is the victim. He is the innocent one. He's the one extending. So he repeats this prayer, Father, forgive them if they don't know what they do. For the hands that put him there, Father, forgive them. For the religious system that put him there, Father, forgive them. For all the political systems and powers that put him on that cross, forgive them. For all the sinful ways of the world, as Brian Zander so eloquently said, that coalesced into the single moment of great horror, Father, forgive them, forgive them. Jesus embodies the Sermon on the Mount here, where it says, uh, forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus did this. In this moment, in fact, this is a series for probably next year, but every statement on the Sermon on the Mount is outworked on the cross in some way, shape or form. He lives it perfectly. Uh, John Tyson, uh, in a, in a, have I got this here? Oh, sorry, jumping ahead here. John Tyson um, that's what he looks like. I'm going to back off there because that's the next quote. But he, I've been listening to a sermon on this passage, and he makes this interesting point. He says, as Jesus begins praying this prayer, his reference point begins with Father. Father. So he's, he's engaged with his heavenly Father in this moment, and he knows the nature of, of his Father. He's talked about this the compassionate father who longs to forgive. He's the father. He's the, he's the father in the story of the prodigal son. That who that is who God is calling to, and so Jesus in this moment embodies and just he is obviously at, he's one with his father, and he there's a kindness that he extends from the cross. You'll see this in all the statements he says. It's kindness. It's forgiveness. It's mercy, and it's kindness because he acknowledges they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what's going on here in Acts uh, 3.17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not, have not have crucified the Lord of glory. I just find this incredible because in this moment, it's, it's grace. Like Jesus extends grace. This is who God is, which is good news for us this morning if you've had a bad week. If you catch my drift, a little naughty, extra cream bun, whatever it may be. And it's like, if you feel like you've mucked up this week in whatever way you've kicked the cat, you've been, you know, we're normally the most short with the people that are closest to us and that we love and we say things we later regret and all that. 
Jen's not here this weekend, so I've had a good weekend on that front, thankfully. Uh, being very kind to Jen because she hasn't been in the house. So, you know, <laughs> all of those things. And sometimes we can turn up to church. And I've said this countless times, is why I love that we do communion every week. The hardest thing for us to get our thick heads around is that He loves us and He's forgiven us. And that He just loves forgiving us. Like that grace that he, he pours out on us, it's not a cheap grace. We've said this before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, talks about this. It's not a cheap grace. It costs God the life of His Son. That's not cheap. It's not easy. It's not like, oh, sweet as, there's no cost here. It costs God the life of His Son. But get your heads around this, that God loves you so much that He did not consider His Son too dear a price to pay, but freely gave Him up for us so that you this morning could know the forgiveness, mercy, grace, and supremely love of God for you. And you know that the, the, it's, it's, it's costly, but you know, and it's costly for us as well to receive it. Why? Because you've got to eat some humble pie. You've got to eat that humble pie. Everyone loves the old humble pie. It tastes awesome, right? It's the worst pie ever. Everyone hates the taste of humble pie. It's the, the most, because we're proud and we, we want to live like we don't need God. That's the problem of our age. We don't need you. Screw you, God. We are sweet on our own. But I tell you what, it's just such a great feeling to come home to the heavenly Father who created you. And what it requires is a bit of humble pie that says, I need it. I need your grace and your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry for kicking the cat. I'm sorry for saying that nasty thing to, to, to Jen or whatever it may have been. And Lord, I need you. I need your grace and your mercy. And so we come to the table. Thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was shed. And I hear your words you're forgiven because the Father's just forgiven. You didn't know, sometimes you don't know what you're doing. It's an ignorance and it's unbelief and just mercy and grace. We need to be overwhelmed with the scandal of it. It's just scandalous. It's scandalous that deicide was involved and it's scandalous that right in this moment we can be forgiven and set free. It's scandalous, but it's true. That's why the, the, the writer said this is good news. This is good news, gospel. It's good news. And so it's something that we receive. It's something that we, um, we, we just let God give us. As Joe said earlier, as far as the east is from the west, we just come and we receive it. It's extraordinary. But it's also something we're called to imitate. It's also something we're called to live. Jesus is our example, and we, he's the one that we follow. And the church is at its best when it's loving and forgiving its enemies. And that's, like the church just, it's, it's the... It's the supreme way of life when we are the forgiven people in a community and culture of forgiveness towards one another. The most quoted scripture in the first 300 years of the church was the scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. The most quoted scripture. The most famous scripture in our time John 3.16, right? We've got, and then it's awesome. So you, you can't, well, not even Scripture Wars here, ooh, ooh, but it's interesting to note that for the early church, it wasn't John 3.16, it was love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. That was the number one Scripture the church orientated itself around and banged on about. Why? Because they're under intense persecution, under enormous persecution. They lived it out under unbelievable persecution. 
And that's why there's often talk, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Like these people lived it out to the most extreme way. I'm grateful that my faith will not be tested like that. We've got to deal with the sludge of consumerism and all of that sort of rubbish, right? We've got to swim in that sewer out there. It's a different sort of thing. But it's not the persecution that these guys faced. And I would actually contend that consumerism and selfishness, which is kind of our big focus, is actually a, a bigger hurdle to jump for, the, for Christians. Like I, a lot of people say, oh man, if persecution, persecution is often sharp in the church, it's been good. My thing is if God can work through selfishness and consumerism, he can work through anything. I mean, if he can set us free from that, which is why we're learning prayers, set prayers and that sort of thing on, in our generosity and giving to reorientate ourselves into a kingdom mindset, total tangent. Um, but it's, it was interesting. But the interesting thing for us today, though, is still the struggle that we have when it comes to Jesus' teaching on the radical love of enemy and the radical uh, forgiveness that he extends. Uh, we uh, preached on the sermon, the royal we, we preached on the sermon on the mount um, a couple of years ago, and we just worked our way through methodically the, the most important teaching that Jesus gave and, and the longest sermon and, and all the rest of it. And the biggest struggle we had as a community was this passage on loving your enemies. It was like people, the feet, oh, not mate, easy tiger, you know. And everyone, like, what about home invasion? What do you do then? Was that, you know, because Jesus' call to pacifism is so extreme, and our imaginations have so been limited in terms of what this radical lifestyle of Jesus looks like. Like, home invasion is nothing compared to the cross, quite frankly. And I know that this is challenging, but it's like Jesus teaching of non-violence and radical love and forgiveness of, of enemy is scandalous to this day. Like if you actually start engaging with it, you're going to struggle, and you are, which is good. You feel it in the room. Ooh, got quiet real quick. A lot of amens two seconds ago, got real quiet. And it's like, whoa, easy, Tiger, because we can think of all the scenarios in which it shouldn't be true. G.K. Chesterton said it's not that Christianity has been tried and failed, it's just that it's so rarely been tried. You know, Tony Campola, the famous sociologist, uh, said, what would happen if a nation didn't retaliate with violence to whatever country they wanted to invade, but rather retaliated with blessing? Just poured out aid and just did everything they could so that it was like, just blessing, blessing. We're going to help educate your kids. We're going to help resource you. We're going to bless you. We're going to bless you to, just to break this horrible cycle of retribution and violence. I mean, imagine if that happened. This is the sort of Jesus mindset that, that blew the church apart in those first 300 years. They lived it out. Absolutely extraordinary. Now, this is not an easy thing, as you've already seen. John Tyson says, forgiveness is hugely costly. Whoever is sinned against bears enormous pain. So I'm not trying to minimize anything here. And it will require a Jesus vision and the power of the Holy Spirit to live forgiveness out. It's true. But it is at the core of the Christian faith that we are a people who not only receive the forgiveness of God, but we extend the forgiveness of God to others. I want to come into land by telling you this story, which I have I've told you once again a couple of years ago, so I'm presuming you've forgotten it. Um, <laughs> not mine, it's um, uh, Brian Zand again told this story in a sermon and it completely undid me. And what he did is he told the story uh, of this guy, Simon Wiesenthal, um, who wrote a book called The Sunflower. And uh, he tells the story, his story, and asks this very, this huge question about forgiveness in his famous book here. So Simon Wiesenthal was an Austrian Jew who was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. 
And uh, as the book opens, uh, he's, uh, he tells a story that he was part of a work day, uh, detail being taken from the concentration camp to do clean-up work in a makeshift field hospital near the Eastern Front. So they march from the prison camp uh, to the hospital, and as they do that, they, they pass this cemetery for German soldiers. And on each grave was a sunflower. And Wiesenthal writes, I envied the dead soldiers. Each had a sunflower to connect him with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. For me, there would be no sunflower. I would be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness and no butterflies would dance above my dreadful tomb. So while he's working in this field hospital, a nurse orders Wiesenthal to follow her. And he's taken into a room where a lone SS soldier lay dying. And the SS soldier is 22-year-old German Karl Seidel. And Karl has asked the nurse to bring him a Jew. And he wants to make his dying confession, and he wants to make it to a Jew. So the SS man is wrapped up in bandages covering his entire face with only holes for his mouth, nose, and ears. And for the next several hours, Simon sits alone in silence with Karl, the dying SS soldier, who tells his story. Karl was an only child from a Christian home. His parents had raised him in the church and had not been supportive of Hitler. But at 15, against his parents' wishes, Karl joined the Hitler Youth. And at 18, Karl joined the infamous SS troops. Now, Karl wants to confess the atrocities that he's participated in. Most terrifically, he tells of being part of a group of SS soldiers who drove with whips 300 Jews into a house where they placed gasoline canisters in the attic and they set the house on fire. Carl saw a mother and father with a father holding their six-year-old in his arms, and to escape the, fam- the flames, the family jumped from the window, and Carl shot them all. So now Carl's been mortally wounded in battle, and he wants to make his final confession. During the several hours that Simon uh, the Jew sat with Carl the Nazi, Simon never spoke. At Carl's request, Simon held the dying man's hand. Simon brushed um, away the flies and gave Carl a drink of water, but he never spoke. During the long ordeal, Simon never doubted Carl's sincerity or that his story was, or that he was truly sorry for his crimes. And then at last, Carl said this, I'm left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are here with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. With that, Simon Wiesenthal made up his mind and left the room in silence. And that night, Carl Seidel died. Carl left his possessions to him, but Simon refused them. Against all odds, Simon Wiesenthal survived the Holocaust. 89 members of his family did not. But Simon Wiesenthal could not forget Carl Seidel. After the war, Simon visited Carl's mum to check out Carl's story. And it was just as Carl had said. Carl's mother assured assured Simon that her son was a good boy and could never have done anything bad. Again, this time out of kindness though, Simon remained silent. And the sunflower, uh, and so in this book, uh, he recognises that this kid was born a good boy, but this graceless period of his life did turn him to a murderer. 
And in this book, he asks the question, he concludes the story with this question, ought I to have forgiven him? Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience of the reader of this episode just as much as it once challenged my heart and mind. The crux of the matter is, of course, the question of forgiveness. Forgetting is something that time alone takes care of, but forgiveness is an act of volition. And only the sufferer is qualified to make that decision. You who have just read the sad and tragic episode in my life can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the crucial question, what would I have done? So the second part of the book is a symposium where 53 uh, prominent writers, Jews, Christian atheists, respond to Wiesenthal's question. And they understood that the, the question was, is there a way that a person in Simon Wiesenthal's position could offer forgiveness of some kind to the dying Nazi? And Brian Zahn reckons that by his count, 28 of the respondents said no. Offering forgiveness in this situation is not possible. 16 of the respondents said yes. There was in some way, there was a, in some way, uh, there was a way in which forgiveness could not have uh, could have been offered, and nine of the respondents were unclear on their positions. Interestingly, the sixteen who were in favour of the former forgiveness were all Christians or Buddhists, thirteen Christians, three Buddhists. And so Simon Wiesenthal uh, lived a noble and humanitarian life. There's a whole organisation set up around him to this day. He died at 2005 at the age of 90, uh, of 96. Now Brian Zahn decided that he would answer Simon Wiesenthal's question by writing his little book, his little part that obviously didn't make the book. But here's, here's what he wrote to Mr. Wiesenthal in response to the question, should he have forgiven him? And I think this is stunning. He says this, Dear Mr. Wiesenthal, first of all, let me say I will not presume to sit in judgment of your actions. You shine kindness to a dying Nazi soldier as you held his hand, brushed away the flies and gave him a drink of water. You show great kindness to his mother and not destroying the memory of her son. Also, I agree with Lutheran theologian Marty Martin who says non-Jews and perhaps especially Christians should not give advice about the Holocaust experience to its ears for the next 2,000 years and then we shall have nothing to say. Cheap instant advice from a Christian would trivialise the deaths, lives and death of millions. Nevertheless, since you have asked the question, let me try to reply. I cannot say what I would have done, only what I could hope I would have done. As a Christian, I would hope that I would reply in something of this manner to my dying enemy. I cannot offer you forgiveness on behalf of those who have suffered monstrous crimes at your hands and the hands of, of those with whom you willingly aligned yourself. I have no right to speak on their behalf, but what I can tell you is that forgiveness is possible. There is a way for you to be reconciled with God, whose image you have defiled, and there is a way for you to be restored to the human race from which you have fallen. There is a way because the one who never committed a crime cried from the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because I believe in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe there is a way for justice and reconciliation to be offered. The forgiveness of which I speak is not a cheap forgiveness. It is not cheap because it was not cheap for Jesus Christ to suffer the violence of the cross and offer no retaliation but love and forgiveness. It is not a cheap forgiveness because it requires of you deep repentance, including a commitment to restorative justice for those that you have wronged. 
There is no cheap forgiveness for your sins. There is a costly forgiveness. If you in truth turn your sins and so, uh, turn from your sins and sorrow and look to Christ in faith, there is forgiveness. A costly forgiveness that can reconcile you to God and restore you to the human race. I cannot forgive you on the behalf of others, but on my own behalf, in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Welcome to the forgiven community of forgiven sinners. May you die in peace. This is what I hope I would have said in deep admiration of your dignity. Deep admiration of your dignity, Brian Zard. It's stunning. It's, it's theologically stunning and nuanced and bang on. In the most extreme situations, forgiveness is possible. And so I come into land today because Jesus says this on the cross. The greatest injustice that has ever taken place in the world, and he offers forgiveness. And so there's a twofold response from us today. The first is to receive his forgiveness and to receive his grace and his mercy. But the second thing I'd like to do is to give us the opportunity this morning to maybe forgive someone that we need to forgive. And that may not be just an instant moment to know that these things aren't, but to maybe begin the journey. Some of you have experienced enormous injustice. I know your story. Unbelievable pain and injustice. Some of you have been hurt by others in the most horrific ways. And you carry those wounds and those scars to this day. And those are the stories I know. Just, there's, so, there's, there's some wounds in this room. And some of you guys have done the hard work of forgiving others and forgiving those that have deeply hurt you and wounded you. Some of you have done that work and it has set you free. It was Desmond Tutu that says not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, you know. Like we know what that can do to our hearts when we harbour that anger and that bitterness and that rage and we fantasise about what we'd like to see happen to that person. It just, there's something that messes our soul. But I, I just felt as I was preparing for this morning that we don't, we don't want to just take this journey into Easter lightly, but we want to give space to get at something, as John Tyson says, of a Jesus vision and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to help people walk into places of healing because they're forgiven. We are the forgiven community of forgiven sinners.